Well, that's the old King James for you, King Jimmy, just for you today. Uh, I'm going to do most of my Bible passages today from a different version, the New American Standard Bible. A little different take on it as well. Now, as I kind of mentioned already, confession and uh, repentance is not really a popular thing, evidently, in some places. And my guess is that confession and repentance doesn't come very easy to all of you either. If you're anything like me, you don't like to admit you've done wrong. You don't like to really repent, which really means to turn around. You don't really like to ask somebody to uh, say, well, I'm sorry. Uh, Will you forgive me? In fact, these two concepts are not really very popular in the church today. In fact, many people, many Christians today would ascribe to what I would call moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, if you don't know what moralistic therapeutic deism is on the screen, I think I've got the words up here for what it is. Here's what people teach in many places. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. What do you think of that? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. There's a good Greek word for it, hogwash. I don't know if that's Greek. It might be Aramaic. I'm not sure. So in contrast to that rather anemic uh, contemporary understanding of the holiness of God and the depravity of mankind stands Psalm 51. We're going to look at the heading. Laird did not read the heading this, but you've got Bibles. There's always a little superscripts ahead. And this one starts out this way. For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Ah, the other shoe just dropped. Now, once again, we see that this psalm is designed to be sung, uh, is written by King David. And about nine months, this is about nine months after David had committed adultery with another man's wife. Her name, of course, was Bathsheba. And because he was complicit in this, he decided to also kill her husband, Uriah, as well. It's at that point God sends Nathan the prophet. And Nathan tells a little story about little sheep and big sheep and everything like that. And David finally says, well, the man who did something like this should die. And Nathan says something to me that would be very scary if I were caught in sin. I'm not going to point my finger at anybody in particular, but he said, you are the man. Almost gives me the willies even thinking about that. You the man. Wow. Now, we can't take time to go back today and go all and read all of 2 Samuel chapter 11, but if you want to know the context, go back and read it today. But I encourage you, just because you learn a little bit more about David's deliberate sin and his cover-up. Now, David thought he actually got away with it. Uh, but 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven tells us this, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of God. I don't know if we've ever thought about that. When you've sinned, that you are doing evil in the sight of God. Hmm, that's pretty harsh. And before we dig deeper into Psalm 51, let me just remind you that repentance and brokenness is really a big deal in the Bible. Let me give you a kind of a little uh, definition. I think this might be on the screen. That repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action or direction. I guess I didn't have that on it. I'll give you a few Bible examples. Uh, Matthew 3, verse 2. John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And then Jesus comes along in Matthew 4, 17 and says the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples, when they were commissioned to be sent out as apostles, Jesus says, after Jesus commissioned them, so they went out and proclaimed that people should, guess what? Repent. Uh, we've actually been told to preach this as well, Luke 24, 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Or Peter, when he got up and gave that great sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 38, he said to these people who are listening, and I, this would be a great, this is a great thing for pastors to say every week, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And when the early church saw that the gospel was changing lives, they responded in Acts 11. Then to the Gentiles, they also went to tell them that repentance also leads to God. So they began to witness the truth of confession and forgiveness. So in, in this psalm, I'm going to take a look at the elements. What, what is true repentance all about? And I, I found five different things. And you, you, if you were to read and come up with eight, that's okay. Uh, five, just I, I was done with five. But here's the very first element. It's conviction. You know, when you face your sins squarely, uh, the first place to start is with conviction. In David's misery, he, he asked for mercy. And likewise, when we face our sins, you know, before God puts them behind him, we need to be convicted that we have indeed done wrong. If you look again at verse 1 of this psalm, it says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Wipe out my wrongdoings. Now, David knows that he can't say, well, I'm out of here free because after all, I'm the king. It'd be like me saying, I don't need to participate in words of brokenness or words of restoration because after all, I'm the pastor. Now, it doesn't work that way. Um, and David knows he can only depend upon the mercy of God. Some of you remember a story in Luke 18 about a tax collector and a Pharisee going to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood up in front and he says, well, I thank God that I'm a wonderful person. I put a lot of money in the collection plate and blah, blah, blah. And in the public, and is standing way in the back corner. And he says he beat on his chest and he said, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, a better translation was, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. See, the phrase, be gracious, literally means to be propitiated towards. Now, you can say, what the heck? <laughs> gracious, I understand that. To be propitiated doesn't mean anything to me. Well, it, it means simply to be satisfied. Cleanse me so that I can, you can be satisfied. Uh, the only way God would be satisfied with any sinner... Uh, would be if God chose to be merciful. In other words, use whatever you must and however you much, how much you need to do to make me clean. Now, verse 2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, if you go back and you kind of look at each of those words in the Hebrew language, the image here is soiled and stained clothing. It's as if you've got something on that has just got... All kinds of crud all over it. Uh, and the word wash would literally mean to trample on or to like beat the clothes on a rock like they would have done down by a local river or the banks of a, uh, of, a, of a lake or something. And you'd use the strongest form of detergent you could possibly do to get that stuff out of there. 
But friends, there's no detergent strong enough to remove all the stains. I mean, I could, you know, it wouldn't work. If say, any sinners in here this morning, you all raise your hand. I gave you each a box of Tide and say, go home. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That's not going. That's not going to work. We can't clean ourselves up. So David asked God to wash him thoroughly, which really means numerous times or many times or as often as necessary. Use whatever you must, however much you need to make me a clean person. Now, verse 3 shows us David was deeply convicted. He says, for I know my transgressions. I know my rebellious ways. And my sin is ever before me. Again, if you go back and look at these Hebrew words, that word know, he says, I know. That's a, uh, a word that means intimate knowledge. I mean, in some respects, it actually says it would be sexual relations. You know, he knew his wife. But this is a very intimate relationship he's talking about here. My sins are ever before me. They live with me. And it just shows us that we're constantly and continually, our sins are out there in front of us and in front of God. We cannot escape his guilt. We can't. And remember, there's no getting right until we really kind of admit how badly we've done wrong. Here's the second element, this confession. These are in verses 4 to 6. So after being busted about his sins of adultery and murder, uh, David is ready to confess. In verse 4, he says, Against you, you only, I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, it kind of reminded me when I was working through this this message of um, what Joseph said to Potiphar's wife. I don't know if you can remember that story back in Genesis 39. Uh, Potiphar's wife trying to tempt him to go to bed with him. And uh, Joseph decides to choose purity over impurity. And in that chapter, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against your husband? No, he didn't say that. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, too many of us put our own spin on our own sin. Before we can ever become clean. Uh, those of us who, pray the, who, play, who play the blame game have a model. I don't know if you're, if you're really good at the blame game. It goes this way. Don't blame me. It's not my fault. Now, the blame game is really an old game. It's older than Monopoly and all kinds of the other games you could play. In fact, you can find the blame game originated in Genesis. Some of you know where it originated. Uh, Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God's clear standards, Adam claimed victim status by what? Blaming Eve and indirectly God. This woman you gave me, (laughs) and he's double-barreled blame, he said, gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. I mean, his immediate reaction was to deny personal responsibility. He was just a victim. We hear that word a lot today. I'm just a victim. You know, you made me do that. You made me feel this way. I'm a victim. Society victimizes me all the time. There's a whole lot of other words I come across when I want to respond to that, but I'm not going to. But have you been blaming people lately for your problems? Do you secretly believe that you're not responsible for your attitude or actions? I mean, have you ever said something like this? Well, You'd understand if you were married to the person I'm married to. 
No, don't pull that one. That doesn't work. Or, you know, you'd do what I've done if you'd been raised in my family. Now, now Martin Luther, uh, I went back to see what good old Marty had to say about this. And Martin Luther, when he was commenting on this passage, said that instead of confessing our own sins, we love to confess the sins of other people. And then he goes on and says, unfortunately, too many of us think our sins smell better than other people's sins as we look down on those who sin differently than we do. Does that sound the least bit familiar in our lives? Well, it's not as bad as Cheryl Metten, you know, something like that. (laughs) Or Arla Markin. Uh, You thought I wasn't paying attention, Arla. So in verse 5, David not only confesses that he sins sometimes, he also owns the fact that he is a dirty, rotten, mean, miserable, depraved sinner. (laughs) And like each of us, his sin nature goes back to his conception. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, if you want a Bible passage to defend um, original sin, in fact, if you want to do it to actually uh, defend a a pro-life argument, there you got it. But see, he's saying here, like Paul said to the Romans, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin, every human being has a bent towards sin. And I said it's kind of pro-life because did you, did you notice when, when David began to sin? At what age? That age. Conception. You know, I don't need to teach you how conception works, do I? Okay. Two people come together, somebody conceives a baby, and that baby was what? Conceived in sin. He became a person when? When he was viable? No. When he could sustain himself on his own? No. He, he, was, he became a person at conception. That's my pro-life message for today. Verse 6. God uses, or David uses the word behold. Again, this is kind of another thing. Hey, listen, look up. He realizes that God is all about what's going on inside of us. Behold, look, you desire truth in the innermost being, in the innermost part you will make me know wisdom. And so before moving on here from uh, confession, I want you to also say that confession has a corporate element to it. We need to do it privately. Every day I write in a book, ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication, that C is confession. Based on four or five Bible passages I study every day, what can I confess according to those verses? In other words, where does Scripture hit me? Right in the heart or right between the eyes? Second Chronicles 7.14 is a good passage to remember, too, that we not only need to confess our sins personally, but I think we need to sometimes confess our sins as a church. I think sometimes we need to do it as a community. We need to say, Lord, this community violating your principle. I think sometimes we need to do it in a country. I think there are plenty of things that we ought to confess that are bad about our country today, that are sinful. Second Chronicles talks about that in 714. If my people who are called by my name and humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and 
heal their land. You want America to be healed? Right there. Humble yourself, pray, seek my face, turn from your wicked ways. Pretty straightforward stuff. Don't write letters. Don't post nasty things on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, take it right to God. So we, we don't have time to dive into this, but I'd also recommend, and some of you are taking notes, you want to read some more about this. I, I did this last week, but there are three different chapters in the Old Testament I, I just commend you to do, and they're all the ninth chapter, interestingly enough. And that's da- Read Daniel chapter 9, uh, read uh, Ezra chapter 9, and then read Nehemiah chapter 9, and it's going to help make this even a little bit broader. Okay, let's move on to the third one. This is cleansing. This is verses 7 to 12. Sin left a stain on David's soul, and he longs to be cleansed. Verse 7, purge or purify me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Now, you can't buy any hyssop that I'm aware of at any local store. So what, what does all of this mean? Well, purge means to be purified and freed from sin, and hyssop was like a bush, and they would use this, for example, they'd take off a branch of it and they'd dip it in the blood and they used that to sprinkle blood on uh, people who had leprosy. Um, it, it was also used uh, to put the blood around the door uh, for Passover uh, when, you're, when the Israelites were getting out of Egypt. Um, hyssop also uh, was used to put a sponge that had some vinegar on it and held up to Jesus uh, as he was dying on the cross. And so David knows that without the blood somehow of sacrifice, there could be no cleansing. First uh, John 1 verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So we can go from being dirty to becoming whiter than snow. Or as the uh, South Pacific translation says, whiter than the inside of a coconut. Brings a little bit better home. So in verse 9, David desires that God would hide or conceal his sins or blot out all of his iniquities, all of his crookedness. And this is the second time that he actually, in the psalm, uses the word blot. And blot literally means to obliterate, to blow it up, to to exterminate it, get rid of it. And then David comes... He experiences his result of cleansing in four ways. One of them is rejoicing. Verse 8, make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. And then there's renewing. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. In verse 11, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And then there's restoring. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That's the way we ought to feel when we know that our sins have been forgiven. We rejoice, we're renewed, we reconnected, we are now restored. That's why we use the words, words of restoration. That's part of the reason why we said we chose the name for this church, to restore, to find something that's broken and try to put it back into usable service. Whether it be bringing people in here to give them some food and some coffee and donuts, whether it means going down the White River and doing it, whether it just means to hang out with other people in the community, we're all about restoring that which is broken. But once you get through that one, here's the fourth one. It's consecration. David has been convicted. He has confessed. And now he's been cleaned and he consecrates himself to do something. And that is to live on mission. 
restore a missional community. Oh, that's interesting how it all fits together. Uh, he knows that he's been saved in order to serve. And there are two examples of how he did this. The first example is in verse 13. David now, as he's gone through this whole process, is ready to share what he's learned about forgiveness. Which, in a manner of speaking, that's exactly what I'm doing today. This is what I've learned about sin and forgiveness. And David says, man, let me tell you about this. He said, then I will do what? I will teach transgressions. I'll tell other sinners your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Now, I find it kind of interesting that it's only after David has been convicted, uh, only after he has confessed, only after he has been cleansed, that he's now ready to tell somebody else about it. Teach somebody. Now, I'm going to just tell you from my own personal life and from the life of other people I've talked to over the years, we really can't minister other, to other people about some things until we've actually experienced it. And sometimes you can't really minister to somebody who's miserable unless you've gone through a certain amount of misery yourself that leads to mercy. Now, for example, uh, Jesus knew Peter was going to fold on the night he was betrayed. He also knew that Peter was going to repent. These are the words of life Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 32. When he finally said to Peter, when you have turned again... When you have repented, strengthen your brothers. Lou, when you have been turned again and repented, tell your brothers. One of the men in our Friday Bible class sent a rather long email this week. And he asked for prayers as he was going pheasant hunting in South Dakota. And I thought, I don't know if I want to pray for somebody who's going pheasant hunting. But I kept reading. And the reason is, is because he's going to go with one of his best friends who has, I think it was three or four sons, only one of whom is saved. He says, so I'm using this opportunity to join my friends and driving to South Dakota so that I might have an opportunity to tell these other three boys how Jesus has changed my life. Hmm. Interesting. We prayed for him, needless to say. And I'm going to be very anxious this next Friday when Glenn shows up again in Bible class and hear how that went. You know, this is what David is doing. Like David, maybe you say, I've got, you know, I've got some guilt for what I've done. I want to get back in the game um, because your grace covers my guilt. Your mercy cleanses my misery. I want to help people see that it's not worth it to live like the world. The only thing that makes life worth living is to worship him. Sin's not worth it. Been there, done that. Don't want to do it anymore. So we got conviction, confession, cleansing, consecration. And the fifth C is contrition. David ends this psalm, this song, with a summary of what it is that God is looking for from us. He doesn't want promises. Oh, Lord, I'll do better next time. You ever hear your kids say that after you nail them on something? I'll never do that again. Well, no kidding. I hope not. But don't quite believe it. Yeah. He doesn't want promises. He doesn't want payments. I mean, could I put extra money? Could I put an extra $5 in the plate? Will that give it? No, that's not going to help either. Verses 16 and 17 tell us what God delights in. It says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are 
what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now that word broken here again means to shatter or smash or burst. And contrite refers to someone who's kind of bowed down with a deep sense of spiritual bankruptcy. It means to be kind of crushed with a sense of sinfulness. It's like the nakedness of your sin has been exposed to God's eternal light. See, our sins should make us really sorrowful. But God wants us to be humble before him. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So there's the five C's. Conviction. You acknowledge your sin. You confess your sin. You seek cleansing. You clean yourself up. And then you live this life of contrition. Turning back all the time. Well, I guess a sermon ought to have some action steps. I got just three of them. Maybe you can come up with more afterwards. Talk back to him. You say, well, did you think about this? No, I didn't. Thank, but thank you for bringing it up. Here's one of them. And that's just to repent and change course. You know, whatever's going wrong in your life, stop doing it and go the other direction. Uh, if we want a revival in this country, for example, uh, we must first repent, I think, in our churches. Uh, I think our country wouldn't be as so far bad off, I think, if our Churches maybe were doing a little bit better job. That sounds like a sad indictment, but I kind of feel that way. If I want things to change, it needs to start here. It needs to start with me. If I want righteousness to reign in society, it needs to reign in me. If I want this church to do anything according to God's word, I think it needs to start with me. I wouldn't want to go to a church where the pastor is not doing what he's asking you to do. Now, with that, I also tell you that I'm also a broken and fallen person. You don't believe that? You can talk to her. You can probably talk to a few other people in here who know me pretty well. But we just need to acknowledge that. To repent and change your course. Whatever we're doing that's not working, go the other way. The second thing is to confess your sins to God, to name them. Um, when I go through this ACTS when it comes to confession, it's pretty hard. Part of me wants to say, yeah, I've done a lot this last week I shouldn't have done, and then move on to Thanksgiving. And I, I love to get down to supplication where I can ask God for stuff. Uh, no, and so I, I'm going to be real honest here. I have no trouble with the Bible passages to write all, all kinds of things to adore God about. I have all kinds of things I can find those Bible passages to thank God for, and I got all kinds of stuff down at the bottom that I want to ask Him for. And then I, I always go back because the C is blank. That just kills me. I'm confessing that. Pretty easy to do those other things. To go back and say, now, from this passage, Lord, what have you taught me about my sin? Hold the mirror up in front of me. Show me. Show me. See, if God forgave a murderer, if God forgave a, an adulterer, if God forgave a liar, guess who he can also forgive? Y'all? Me? Have you ever been in misery, but you've not yet cried out for mercy? 
you ever languish for a while and suddenly it dawns on you what I really should be doing rather than crabbing about it is pray about it? Rather than to complain to my husband or my wife or somebody else, maybe I should complain to God like David does. We're going to go into a really rotten psalm next week. It's one of the most miserable psalms in the, in the whole of the 150. But it's time to confess, to be cleansed. And then the, the third part, just to come to the cross and be changed. I couldn't think of any other thing to say about that third point other than a hymn verse. We probably could have sung this today, but this is a hymn verse. Some of you will know this. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. When life's gone south, turn to Jesus.